Well, good morning to you. Welcome to St. Peter's Fireside. Um, my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you with us, wherever you're joining us from um, and wherever, whenever you're watching this. Um, today is Palm Sunday, at the beginning of Holy Week in the run-up to Easter. Hopefully, uh, you've got or are, or are getting the Easter boxes, which the team here have uh, very diligently put together for you, designed to walk you through Easter week. There are readings for each of the days um, and information about those little things for you to kind of um, hold and, and embody what's going on. Through participation in this sequence of days, we share in Christ's own journey from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the empty tomb on Easter morning. Palm Sunday kind of feels a little dissonant for me, a little jarring. With all that we know that happens, it feels strange to kind of enter into this week with hosannas and hallelujahs, with palm leaves and cloaks on the ground. In the church where I trained um, in the UK called Christ Church Pennington, uh, we took um, family services very seriously. The last Palm Sunday I was there, we literally hired a donkey to be at church that Sunday. Uh, so you'd be glad to know that it wasn't actually in church, it was just outside, um, but still we celebrated when the end came and the, the, the donkey hadn't had any bowel movements um, during the service or afterwards. There was fun moments in celebration. There was a triumphal entry. Jesus hailed as the Messiah, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's jarring because a week later, those same people who were crying Hosanna and glory in the highest at this sight of Jesus entering into Jerusalem would have been the ones who were also shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What do we, what do we even do with that? We are, we're to enter into it because that's reality. One minute, we're kind of all in, chest out, ready to go. And the next minute, we can't stay awake. We're hunched over like we've been punched in the chest and we're ready to hide. Isn't that the reality of the Christian life? So that's why we're looking at the life of Peter in the services this week. Uh, today, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at the three statements of Peter today, and then the three denials, and then the three questions asked of him. I think it's apt to look at Peter, because we're called St. Peter's Fireside. As a church, our name has a story. The name St. Peter's Fireside comes from the two different fireside scenes in the life of the Apostle Peter. If you don't know what happens at those two firesides, then please do stick around and join us this week to find out. But it's also apt to look at Peter because he characterizes some of the up and down nature of the Christian life. One that can go from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him, crucify him the next week. As we journey through this week, as we journey through the life of Peter, keep your eyes peeled for how he is treated by Jesus despite failure, despite messiness, despite despair. How we see this happen before our eyes will affect our willingness to follow Jesus through our own failure, our messiness, and our despair. How Peter is treated by Jesus, despite the mess, can be paradigmatic, it's easy for me to say, paradigmatic for how we will be treated by Jesus in our mess. It can be a template for us, a kind of lens for us to see um, our Christian life uh, through what happens to Peter. So we're going to look at today Peter's journey, our critical journey, and then very briefly at the end, the Holy Week journey. 
what I pray for us as we begin. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us uh, today. You'd speak to us about ourselves. Give us knowledge of ourselves that we might have more knowledge of, of who you are. These things go hand in hand that uh, you'd enable us um, to, to, to go beyond uh, what we see and to see uh, the reality that, that you want to show to us as we enter into Holy Week, that we would know you journeying with us, that you would be the one who is um, with us, the God who is with us. So allow us to know that, um, even as we listen, even as I share uh, this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, Peter's journey. We begin with a very short summary of the life of Peter in Luke's gospel through three statements of his. If you've been with us the last little while, you'll know that we're going through Luke. In fact, we're encouraging people to write um, out the gospel of Luke as a formative practice. And we're going to go to um, detail about uh, Peter's life um, as we come to those. So today, I'm going to just look at um, Peter's life with very broad brushstrokes, the beginning part of it. Three statements. We meet Peter first as Simon. Uh, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Insert inappropriate mother-in-law joke here. Uh, Jesus is teaching at the lake and the crowds press in, so much so that Jesus gets into one of those two boats where the fishermen were cleaning their nets after a long night shift. They're ready to go home. They've, 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 messed, they've failed. They haven't caught any fish. They must have been a bit self-conscious seeing a crowd begin to gather around Jesus. They had a great view and excellent access to sound, but it's like kind of attending a talk somewhere and all the seats are taken except at the front. Um, some people love those seats and choose those, but I never choose those. I feel a little exposed. Uh, the fishermen would have been doing that as they were mending their nets, as they were getting ready to go home. But then Jesus um, finishes his teaching. He's started um, into their boats. He's gone into their boats um, as a way to kind of um, um, shield himself from the incoming crowd. Jesus finishes his teaching and he asks the fishermen, Simon to put his net into the water for a catch. Simon probably doesn't think this makes much sense. Net fishing is far easier at night. Plus, Simon is an actual fisherman, not just some guy who's teaching on the, the seashore, the, the lake shore. But Simon listens anyway. Simon puts his nets in and he does as he's told. What happens? A boatload of fish, two boatloads of fish, more than two boatloads of fish more than could be made into sashimi in all the, the Japanese restaurants in Vancouver in one catch. Simon Peter is brought to his knees in, in amazement. He says, and this is our first statement, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He falls at Jesus' knees and says, go away from me. I'm not worthy, I'm sinful. And it reminds us of of Isaiah 6, where the prophet there, seeing a vision of God, says, Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, what Peter says. From our perspective, I guess this is somewhat of an odd response, but it's in keeping with the sense of those times, that there was a need to keep separate the, the holy and the unholy, the pure and the impure were to be kept at a distance because it was contagious, the uncleanness. 
So, so Peter is saying, stay away from me, Jesus. You don't know what I'm like. Go away from me. Get out of the vicinity. Because with holiness, there comes separation. You get removed from the community. You begin to feel like an outcast. It's good for the wider group. It's justified. And that's why Peter says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. But what does Jesus do? Does he run away? Does he put on uh, one of these masks, some rubber gloves, some antibacterial wipe? No, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He draws near. He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. He calls him. He draws near. He reverses that pattern of contagious unholiness with contagious holiness. He says, come follow me. I've got you. And that was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Later, after a while of miracles and healing and teaching, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Peter is that keen person in class who um, sometimes gets the answer right, but only because they try and answer all of the questions and they have a 50% chance of getting them right. He's that type of person who's, whose um, hands are so far up in the air that they need their other hand to actually hold up the other one that gets so tired, right? You know those people. He tells Jesus that people are saying he's John the Baptist or, or Elijah or one of the prophets. And when Jesus asks him, point blank, who do you say I am? Peter says this, the Christ of God, God's Messiah. This is our second statement. Peter gets it right, the Christ of God, that's who he is. You can picture Peter's smug face, can't you? Beaming smile, pointing to himself, guys, I got it right. But what kind of Messiah was Peter expecting? What was he dreaming of? What kind of disciple did he want to be? Now, in Mark's gospel, we get some further commentary on, on what he says here. Mark describes a miracle where Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. The first stage of the healing, the blind man says, I, I see, but, but people are, are walking around like, like trees. And Jesus lays his hands on him again, and he sees everything clearly. Then Mark describes Peter saying, you are the Christ. Peter gets it right. It's the right answer. But Mark is telling us that he only sees partially. Like the blind man beginning to see, but seeing people like trees. Peter is beginning to see um, who Jesus is, but actually needs some of his understanding to, to be shifted. Because just after that, Jesus tells him that he's going to have to die. That's what he came for. And Jesus takes him to one side and, and rebukes him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says the right thing. He has the right answer, but he doesn't fully see what's going on. Like the crowds welcoming Jesus on Palm Sunday, they had a hope for the Messiah they were hoping for, but they were to be disappointed. Peter gets it so wrong that, that Jesus calls him Satan, says, Satan, um, get behind me. We call him Saint Peter, but we mustn't forget that he got the idea of Jesus' mission so very wrong that he was called out in such a dramatic way. But we mustn't think of Peter as some sort of idiot. He wasn't dopey from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yes, he got things uh, wrong time and time again, but he doesn't get discarded. He doesn't get shamed. He's on a journey. He is serious about following Jesus, and we see that in his life. When the going gets tough and some other disciples start leaving Jesus, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Something has deeply changed in his heart Jesus is doing something there, and he knows that Jesus is the one in whom there is eternal life. 
When Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be handed over to be crucified, Peter is the one who says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That's in Matthew. And our third statement from Luke chapter 22, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's committed. He's ready to fight. He's ready for a fist fight, a sword fight, any kind of fight, really. He just doesn't know what kind of battle is going to take place. And so those are the three statements that we have. Such a a breadth of experience, is it not? Depart from me. You're the Christ of God. I'll go with you to prison, to death. And then later, as we'll see in the week, I don't know you. And And saying to Jesus, Jesus, you know that I love you. There's so much that's up and that's down. What do we focus on? Just the shiny parts? Peter's life is a paradigm for our life of faith. It's up and down. It's messy. It's not linear. It doesn't just go up like a straight line. It's a bit of a roller coaster with ups and downs and loop the loops. Now, if I were Peter, St. Peter, Cephas, or, or, you know, which is what Jesus renamed him. That's why we call him Peter. That's a Latin uh, version of, 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 of the name. Um, Cephas means rock or rocky. I would definitely have got people to call me rocky. That's what I would have um, named myself as. I'd certainly have got people, if not just to call me Rocky, um, it would have been to to edit out those rough parts of my story. Those incriminating parts, I would say, get those out. I'm too important a figure in the church uh, to look like a chump like this. Do you realize that people are going to read about this in years to come? I don't care about your journalistic integrity. Out with those parts. But no, they're here. It's for us to reflect on the life of of following Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, what kind of Messiah, King and Lord Jesus is that Jesus, that that Peter follows. So today, however up and down, messy, non-linear, your journey with Jesus is, take heart. Take heart from Peter's journey. We move on to um, our critical journey. We've said that that's Peter's journey, but we also have our own one. It's about our journey with Jesus, the lens that we see uh, through Peter's story into our own story. Our lives of following Jesus are often messy. We know that perhaps all too too well right now. So what I want to do is to present us with a map today, a map with stages that help us to make sense of Peter's journey and will hopefully give us um, encouragement on ours. It's from a book called The Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich. The subtitle is Stages in the Life of Faith. Um, It's called The Critical Journey. Now, stage theory, which is what this presents, is an attempt to map out the spiritual journey to better name and to chart out the invitations of Jesus now. Let me just give a few words of preface for it. It's descriptive and not prescriptive. So it's not telling us um, what to do, but it's describing uh, through many years of, of, I guess, study and of of, of research and looking into the Christian life of of what um, a way to describe it is. It's biographical rather than biblical. Though, as you'll see, it kind of maps quite nicely onto Peter's journey. Um, It does that quite well. So it's a map of the journey. Now, some people 
on Google Maps go straight from typing in the destination to pressing start. They think, okay, let's go, we're done. Others like to have seen uh, where they're going to kind of get an idea. They type in the destination, they look at the route, they see what they're passing, what the traffic might be, which option to take, and whether that's a good estimate of time. I think it's the same here. Some, for some people, this is going to resound well. Other people are just want to get there. There are six stages, okay, and a wall. Six stages and a wall. Let me read the summary of the six stages, and then we'll look at the first three uh, this morning. Stage one is this, is the discovery and recognition of God, stage one. Accepting the reality of God can begin while one is young or can occur later through a religious experience or conversion. This conversion can be instantaneous or can occur over a long period of time. That's stage one, discovery and recognition of God. Stage two is a time of learning and of belonging, labeled the life of discipleship. It primarily involves learning in a community setting from spiritual leaders or religious writings. This is a quote from the book. Now, we stumble upon a set of ideas, a belief system, or a group of people who show us delight and answer our questions. It's such a big relief and feels so safe and secure, like a haven in a storm. And for now, this is all we need. That's stage two, the life of discipleship, following and teachings and a leader. Stage three is the productive life and involves consciously serving God through one's spiritual gifts. The truths learned in stage two find an outlet in stage three. Stage four is the journey inward, a deep and very personal inward journey that always, almost always comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. In this stage, our former views of God are radically challenged the disruption can be so great that we feel like we are losing our faith or betraying loyalties. This is the journey inward. Around stage four is what the authors describe as the wall. It can come at the beginning, middle, or end of stage four. So it can kind of cause the inward journey or it can be a result of it, the wall, right? Sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? This is a pain that kind of stops us in our tracks, a wall that we can't get around, but we can only get through. One of the surest signs of an invitation to the wall is of repeated struggles with the same type of issue, repeated patterns over a long period that now seem to get worse or come to a head. Spiritual crises, chronic family issues, job loss, repeated stresses, addictions, mental illness, total loss of faith, chronic physical symptoms, leaving several churches or ministers who are not meeting our needs or noticing the same types of people showing up in our lives. We rarely choose, we never choose the wall. We never choose um, to kind of go through that, but we're brought to it through something else. That's the wall in stage four. Stage five is this, it's the journey outward, where our focus is outward, but from a new grounded center of ourselves. At this stage, we surrender to God's will to fully direct our lives, but with our eyes wide open, aware but unafraid of the consequences. We possess a newfound confidence that God loves us fully, just as we are, warts and all. There is a human tendency to think that if God really knew us, God would not love us. And at stage five, we grow into the fullness, the full awareness that God truly does love us, even though we are never fully whole. God loves us in our humanness. He came for that. That's a journey outward. And finally, stage six is the life of love. 
where God's love is demonstrated through us to others in the world more clearly and consistently than we ever thought possible. By losing ourselves, we find it true that um, we, we find ourselves. God's presence is experienced in all our relationship, not just to God, but to others, ourselves, and the world. This is the life of love. This is, um, yeah, the pinnacle, you could say, of stage six of these stages in the journey. So that's a summary of the stages of faith from the critical journey. Let me just give a couple of quick points to note here. Firstly, it's not as linear as it sounds. I'm not, um, obviously when I present it, it sounds like stages that you go from one to the other, um, but it's definitely not a timeline, but a map um, that allows you to see where you're going, uh, where you've been, and to understand some of that, to place it within these kind of, this framework. But it's rarely just one um, up, 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 up. We kind of go back, it's a spiral often, isn't it? But um, perhaps when we look back on life, we see that we have been moving forward, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like many times we're, we're going backwards or we're stalling or, or we can't get out of uh, first gear. Um, and I think this stage theory, this way of seeing the Christian life has helped me understand a lot of my own experience with church life and, and some frustration with that, for example. And some of the questions I've always wondered about um, kind of get answered here, or at least have a semblance of an answer here. I've always wondered, what makes some people um, harder and more bitter and brittle as they grow older? What makes some people more soft and loving and, and kind? What is it that does that? I feel as if there are some answers here. The six stages, the next point is this, the six stages in the wall can be seen in three parts. The first three stages are described as the external journey. Uh, stage four in the wall is the journey inward. And stage five is the journey, uh, stage five and six is the journey outward. So we have the sense in which the journey is, is external. We, we kind of do things um, in an external way for external reasons, and we do it uh, externally. But then something happens that draws us inward, that challenges us to, to look beyond um, what we had known. And as we deal with that, as we allow that to shape us, we are changed and that journey outward begins. So for some of you, this is helpful. As I said before, if it's not helpful, then that's okay. If you want more information, uh, please do ask. Email me at double at stpetersfireside.org. Perhaps uh, someone could put that up on the, the chat and I can give you uh, more resources for this. We said that Peter's life is um, a lens, a template for us to see um, some of what goes on in our life. There is space to struggle. There is space to grow. There is space for the mess. And we see that in Peter's life and the way that Jesus loves him. Um, despite of him, there is hope for us. And as we actually look at the first three stages, we loosely see this external journey that Peter goes on. Stage one, he kind of recognizes God. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Here we recognize that there is someone, something behind it all. There's more to life than, than what we see. We are more than just skin and bones. The world is more than just matter and material. It's more than fish and boats. There is someone who, who is, is Lord of these things, who's, in, who's able to know more than us about those things, even though he was a fisherman. It might be instantaneous or over decades that we get this recognition. It might be because of the beauty of the mountains or of 
uh, the beauty of quantum physics. It might be because of intense suffering or overwhelming joy, but something drops, the penny drops. There is more to life than just me. There's a recognition of something out there. This is stage one. And the thing about the, the, thing about the stages um, is that people can get stuck in a particular stage. Um, we can get stuck in stage one when we don't find and join a community to go on this journey with. And we never move on from this higher power idea um, to actually following Jesus. Stage two is this life of discipleship and learning. We go from seeing and experiencing God as generic to recognizing that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, incarnate in the person um, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is where Peter says, you are the Christ of God. To who else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They're not just out there somewhere if we just dig hard enough. Actually, they come from, from Jesus and his words and his life and from him himself. We get stuck in this stage where we uh, remain in the black and white thinking that has maybe got us to where we are. When we put ourselves in boxes and label people as in or out, rigidly dogmatic or fundamentalist or tribal. The authors of this book tell us about switchers and searchers. Let me tell you about them briefly. Switchers switch from community to community, leader to leader, philosophy to philosophy. There is idealism initially, but then it kind of falls off the cliff because it's fantasy. And they're yet to accept the reality that no community leader or philosophy is perfect or denomination or church. Unless they land somewhere, they don't ever mature. There are also searchers. These are those who need to go through a process of, of searching and, and finding healing for their religious wounds. All of us, even though we had a healthy background perhaps, need to go through this. Some of us have had bad, horrendous experiences uh, with church life. Some people need to go through a, a deconstruction of, of what they've been brought up with. Now that's quite a trendy word. Um, and the idea requires some care, I think, when it's for its own sake, when we're deconstructing for deconstruction's sake, I think it can be unhealthy. It is unhealthy. But when it's done with a community of believers with the aim of recognizing the ways in which we don't follow the ways of Jesus, but have blindly followed a church culture or a political party or a family teaching or tradition, then I think it's healthy. But it does need reconstruction into something deeper, something more intelligent, more thoughtful, more compassionate, and less tribal and dogmatic, or guided by fear or anger or against something, but is rather kind of fueled by conviction and depth. And so stage three is this productive life. We move from stage two uh, to three. When we move away from some of that, that, that thinking to, to the productive life, it's how you follow Jesus with your gifts and your makeup and contribute to the community and take responsibility for others in some way. It's the doing stage, serving God, having goals, doing, 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 busy, busy, busy. You know those people, right? How are you doing? Oh, busy. Next week you ask them, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, still busy. How are you doing? Yeah, busy, right? Many of us kind of like it here. We feel at home. We feel like we're doing something. We feel like we're productive. We wish we could kind of just end our journey there. For me, much of my life has been here. It's been somewhat of a misguided story that what I do is who I am. Performance, 
performance then leads to perfectionism because if performance tells me who I am, then I need to do it perfectly. Then if it's perfectionistic, then I'm going to have to get into pretense because I can't do it. I'm trying to please people with my performance, but I can't quite do it perfectly, so I'm going to have to pretend. And then, then there's pressure to prove, and you keep doing that, and it goes back to, to performance. It really is a, a vicious cycle. We get stuck here in stage three when we are run by ambition rather than obedience, on our own performance rather than God's will. Interestingly, before Peter says, I'm ready to go to, with you to prison and to death, Jesus. Let's take them all on. We notice in Luke that there's a dinner conversation about, uh, among the disciples about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Which of them was the greatest? We see that in Peter's journey here, it's all about the, the external, among some of the other disciples too, evidently. Much of it was, um, was chest bumping. It was for show. Much of it was bravado, the equivalent of driving outside with the top of your car down, wind in your hair, looking a million dollars when behind your sunglasses is spiritual poverty and pain that you know about and only you know about. There's no inwardness. There's no depth there. Peter is yet to take this journey inwards. He's yet to come to the wall that brings him to the end of himself. Something needs to break in him. We'll see that as we journey through Holy Week. So where are you today? Where are you stuck? What would it look like for you to become unstuck? What would it look like for you to go beyond, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus, to move from the shallows to the deep, to go from, I'll follow you anywhere, to actually doing some of the hard stuff that, 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 um, that allows us to go deeper with him, to allow him to do that deeper work in us, to ask hard questions of ourselves and those close to us, um, of our spiritual director or, or, or counselor. Where do you think I am? How do you receive me? Why do I not have anyone close um, who's able to, to share some of these things with me? Wherever you are on the journey, well, we are St. Peter's Fireside. We are wanting to step into this more and more. We invite you into that. You're welcome here, however you are, at whatever stage you're at, you're welcome. And we long for you to grow, whether it's journeying through Holy Week together, finding a community group, pointing you to um, people who are slightly further along in the journey than you are, or listening to your story and, and discerning the invitations of Jesus. Would you let people in? Would you come and be seen unknown. Let us know how we can journey alongside you. In a sense, it's a journey that you have to do alone, but it's a journey that you can't do yourself. What are you being invited into? What part of your pain, your confusion, your self-denial, your sacrifice in your past or actually in your present, are you being called to see in a slightly different light? Maybe you've resented it, you've kind of hated it, you're, you're trying to get rid of it. What if the events of your past are, are fixed, but the meaning of those events in the past are not. Let me say that again. What if the events that have happened in your life are fixed, but the meaning of those are not? What if the power of every experience in your life is determined by the meaning that you attach to it, and so the challenge is to actually place a different meaning to those past events and placing it within God's wider story? 
placing it into a stage in your faith journey, perhaps? What if we need a wall experience to drive us deeper inwards, to realize that we have come to the end of ourselves? I've been challenged recently by my own spiritual director about not attempting to cut off the hard parts of my past, but to integrate it into a wider story. Not to sweep it under the carpet or to kind of get rid of it, to, to, to um, excise it, but actually to integrate it into my story, into my ministry, into my life. I wondered what that, that looked like. I think the stages of, of faith kind of help to do that a little bit. It's possible. Let me give you an example um, just to close, really. That it's possible to kind of take some of the hard things in your life to give it a different kind of meaning. Those events that have happened um, are fixed, but the meaning to them um, is not. I've been reading about um, a lady called Kim Phuc Phan Thi. Uh, you may not have heard of her, but you've probably seen her picture. Her life changed forever on June the 8th, 1972, at age nine. She's known as the Napalm Girl. The Napalm Girl. Perhaps you've seen that black and white photo uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph taken of her in Vietnam, where she's um, in amongst um, several other children and adults running. They're, they're on a road, and um, she's naked. She's screaming in pain because uh, she's been hit uh, by her, the place that she was has been hit by a, a napalm bomb. She was naked because the bomb had burned off all her clothes. She says in an interview, my life has changed forever. This is what she thought. People will look at me different, differently. Why did that guy take that picture when I was in agony, naked, so ugly? I wish that that picture wasn't taken. She was a victim of war at nine with horrific burns and 17 operations. Uh, she, her skin didn't have pores and so uh, she lived with that kind of overheating and, and, and that discomfort to say the least. Not only that, she was used as a political pawn. People realized that with her face and, and that picture, they could use it against the perpetrators. It left her with hatred, bitterness, and anger. She lived with this question, why me? Why me? Why did that person have to take that photo of me at that point? In 1982, she wanted to take her own life. But she picked up a New Testament in a library in Saigon. She met Jesus and began her, her journey. She learned to forgive. She says that forgiveness set her heart free. She found her way um, to Canada uh, where she sought um, asylum. She began to work with children who had trauma like her. She knew not only their physical pain, but their nightmares and their trauma. She had a child. She knew that she would have to tell um, him about her, her, her scars and she found that as she did, um, her son would, would kiss her scars and, and tell her that, she, that he loved her. With the children that she works with, she shows them her scars, integrates her pain and her suffering into her story. It's about the story of Jesus in her life. And she's built schools and hospitals and orphanages all over the world. And she says this, I work not because of my duty, not because of my mission, but because of my love. She was asked, what do you see when you see that girl in the picture now? And she was able to respond, I am thankful. 
she seems to be living that life of love. We long to see our church step into the story of St. Peter's fireside. All of us are invited into the various parts of the story, wherever you're at, whatever stage of the journey you're in, whether you're at the first fireside when things are falling apart, the second fireside, whether you're at stage one or at stage six, our hope is to live more and more into this story together, that we would embody that together. So as we journey into Holy Week, know that you're not alone. Even though we're distant, we are together. Whatever stage you're at, we follow a Savior who first made that epic journey for us. That those who are unholy might know that his journey of that first Holy Week was for us, to bring us home. He drew near to us even when we said, depart from us. His journey was to a cross, not just to a cross, but through a cross. Not just to death, but through death. So that we can see and now trust in faith that death is followed by life. A Good Friday is followed by Easter Sunday. A Holy Saturday is followed by an empty tomb that God works in and through this journey of life and death and resurrection so that it gives hope to every aspect of our lives that we can trust him as he works those things in our lives.